would like to ask for your attention some clarifications about practice, our tools, our task. It is important that we grow up as meditators, that we stop just sitting there hoping childlike that things that are troubling us are going away, that we be kind of airlifted out, that we have some, you know, Deus Ex Machina principle kicking in or kind of a sort of Scotty beam me up number going on, you know, so. This is not a fair world and meditation is no exception to this. It's messy business. You know, in a, in a fair world, you'd had a clear task, clear instruction manual. We had a proper scientific approach and we had a status questionis, you know, received wisdom of my field. Um, some brilliant theoreticians would have given us ideas how to proceed next, then we would go into our clean and well-funded well laboratories. Under the bright lights of inspection, we would conduct a number of, you know, well-operationalized tests with cleanly defined parameters. And we come to some conclusions and gradually, from hypothesis to hypothesis, falsificating our way through our wrong understandings, we would arrive at some kind of new, empirically based and uh, repeatable sound uh, insights. But uh, meditation doesn't quite work that way. You know, it's kind of, it's not well funded. Parameters of progress are dubious. Evidence is at best anecdotal. No objective criteria. It's kind of like, you know, stumbling down a badly lit escalator uh, staircase into some, into some dim basement in which, you know, we have neither proper lighting nor the tools are clearly uh, labeled. Uh, it's kind of all messy, all jumbled together. My object of investigation and my tools are kind of mixed up. Um, somehow I have only one bandaged hand and the other one is tied to my back. And, and I kind of grope in the dark there somewhere to kind of find things out. Um, so it is Precisely because the mind that tries to understand itself is also the object of this attempt to understand. The instrument and the piece of investigation are happening at the same place. Yeah. Um, that means that whatever colors the experience of the mind right now 
is likely to influence my instruments in some way. If I'm trying to make an angry mind peaceful, I need to know um, somehow not just to discern anger and to discern peace and to recognize this is the case. I also need to know how I can make an angry mind peaceful. Now, this is not easy because we're starting with the angry mind or the greedy mind or the confused mind, the doubtful mind. And that particular perspective will color our self-perception, our perception of what goes on in that mind. It will color our uh, construction of world and self. And um, the only way we can cope with this is by trying to be as organized and as oriented as possible, as sober as possible, and uh, order our tools identify, like with all messy stuff, it's necessary that we are very clear what we do, what's happening, what we try, uh, and some of the results of what we try. And then we correct. We don't expect things to be straight away clear. We are equipped with patience. We're equipped with general good intention. We're equipped with kindliness. I wondered what I would do with you when I uh, thought about structuring these six weeks and I decided the most important thing meditators can learn is not what the precise meaning of Ajata Bahidda is in the Satipatthana Sutta. The most important thing is that we learn to relate to our experience. All the powerful stuff in that teaching is of little value if we have not learned to relate to our experience. Somehow the key point for me in developing sati is beginning to cultivate a relationship to my own experiential process. To cultivate discernment in there, to cultivate willingness in there, and to cultivate skill and capacity in holding that relationship if I don't get what I want. If it doesn't happen, what I think should happen according to the book. Yeah. We've all read the book. The simplest form I've spoken of a week ago, you know, it says basically sit down after the meal, wash your hands, sit there upright, cross your legs, uh, seek out an, an open space or an empty space or a quiet space and then uh, establish mindfulness and put down the hindrances and realize the jhanas and uh, understand the nature of impermanence, the four truths, and leave behind the asavas and, you know, bask in the glory of having achieved what there was to be achieved. Ready, steady, go. <laughs> and while that is in some way accurate, it lacks some detail in certain areas. So we need to learn how to match what happens to us when we sit down, cross our legs, establish mindfulness, and breathe mindfully in and out. Um, we need to learn how to map that for us. And we need to find out how we think about ourselves. 
In my ideal world, you know, meditators would start at zero, but meditators don't start at zero. They they start with already quite an, a few perceptions about what, who they are, what they need to do, what is missing, what they never get, what they should get, you know, what's wrong with them when they don't get what they think they should get. Yeah, there's already quite a lot of stuff there. And it seems to be, we never get that clean laboratory, those well-lit surroundings, the neat instruction manual. And then we go about in the sterile environment and cultivating in, the, in our petri dishes, you know, the Brahma Viharas. Yeah. Under good uh, optimum conditions, which it's just never... It's just never that way. The mind is a capricious and wondrous animal and full of surprises. Uh, when you think you've got it sussed, it usually does a little dance on you. It shows you that uh, there are parts you haven't understood or that take you by surprise or that jump out of the, out of the dark in some way. Sometimes delightful, uh, creative and sometimes uh, unexplicable and bewildering and disturbing even. So it's necessary that you meet that mind, that you relate to it. So in the Samyutta Nikaya is the story of a cook I want to tell you, many of you will probably have heard that story of the cook or will have read it. Um, I think it's the, it's number 10 in the Samyutta Nikaya in the group discourses of the 47th Samyutta. If I'm, I'm saying this offhand, so it may be also 9, but probably 10. Uh, and that cook <coughs> is a little analogy to a meditator. So the Buddha tells a story of a wise cook and a foolish cook, and they're both good cooks. And the wise cook and the foolish cook are both cooking for a king. And since they're both good cooks, they cook quite similar, their preparation. But the, the wise cook is interested what happens with his food when the king gets it. Yeah? How much the king eats, in what sequence he eats, of what he takes much, of what he takes little, what he leaves aside, what seems to be becoming to him, and so forth. So the wise cook is interested how the king's response to his food is. And then this thing is mapped to the meditator, the wise meditator and the uh, foolish meditator. They're both quite diligent. Both of them turn up, both of them put in effort. But the wise meditator pays attention what happens to his king. Now his king is his mind, his chitta. So the wise meditator takes note how the chitta responds to his or her application, to his or her approach. So, the message is very simple there. Uh, it's not enough. Good intention is not enough. Yeah. Although this is a big message, things boil down to intention in Buddhism. Actually, in terms of meditation, good intention is not enough. You need to look what it does. You can do stupid things with good intention. But still, better to do stupid things with good intention than to do stupid things with bad intention. But still, if you can combine you know, your intention with 
also effectiveness, attunement, uh, skill, then there is a lot more power to good intention than just, you know, grand-heartedly wade in there and not really take much note of what your collateral is. Yeah? So what can we do? We can be clear about differing dimensions of our experience. I think that's where these Satipatthana maps comes in. Channel one, my somatic experience. Channel two, my hedonic experience. Anything to do with pleasure and displeasure and indifference. Uh, channel three, uh, the world of mood, climate, weather, inner weather, and the impulses of mind, the sankhara domain. Yeah? Anything to do with wish, want, aspiration, aversion, anything that bears some flavor of intentionality or volition. Yeah? Now, generally, we use the word intentionality for things we know of. We're more or less conscious of the direction of this intention. And the philosophical term volition is a little broader, uh, referring to possible forms of intention that are not conscious. Yeah? Maybe some of your philosophers who will disagree with the usage, please do so. I'm happy to learn. Um, I'm fairly clear what I mean. I'm not always fairly clear whether I can get that across, since this is not my language. Um, nevertheless, we know that there are things in us that are intentional without us being conscious of this. So that introspective awareness does not necessarily bring me to the acknowledgement of these forces. And yet there are many, many intentions that are quite conscious. I'm quite capable of recognizing a variety of impulses. So all this is part, if it moves into a direction, yeah, it's part of the third channel. It has something to do with citta. And the contemplation of these impulses, citta and upasana, brings me into a terrain where my impulse, my mood, and uh, yeah, affective flavor takes place. Generally, the things of channel three are more bulky, they're more complex, they're temporarily lasting longer. Yeah? While Vedana does this kind of thing, ooh, hmm, yeah? a chitta does more, it is longer, it is more, it's less easy to define where it begins and ends. That's why we need to have our loins a little girded when we start to contemplate citta qualities of mind. And finally, we have what I call channel four. We have the, the content of mind, not the state, not the climate, not the weather, but actually the content. Yeah? So object, concept, image, the stuff we make the stories out, the stuff we, we do the thinking, the, the phenomenal stuff which is wildly ramified and associatively knitted together. These are not the Satipatthana exercises. This is just the raw material for the exercise. Yeah? So let's be clear. Uh, the Satipatthana exercises suggest we do an, a number of differing practices in these channels, but uh, just let the channels speak to us as dimensions of our experience. So, somatic, hedonic, affective, and cognitive. So, how do I meet these differing dimensions in my experience? 
first of all, I know the flavors of experience when I have dealings with a particular corner of the mind. I know that the body produces things like heat and cold, tension and relaxedness. It produces uh, soft warmth and knotty hardness. It produces itching and pulsing and vibrating. It produces weightiness and solidity. It produces extension. It produces uh, expanse, an earth element. Primary quality of earth element is expansiveness. It takes space. Very classic philosophical stuff. Res extensa. The things that are extended. So, whenever I am meeting some degree of intensity or lack thereof in my experience, it helps me to know, is this of a bodily nature? Is this a mood or is this a body state? So to simply be able to recognize that which right now takes my attention, preoccupies me in some way, what corner does this come from? And then learning to attune my attentional process in a skillful way to this particular phenomena. So, how to be with the pain in my knee. Very simple stuff. Can I disregard it as long as possible? When I can't disregard it anymore, can I go there and meet it without hostility? Can I offer it coexistence? When it's so strong that I have to leave my primary meditation object, say the breath, then I turn to this pain and make this pain my meditation object. I try to go under the label called pain and try to get in touch with the um, the somatic dimension of this, you know. Is it a throbbing pain, a hammering pain, an electric pain, a pulsating pain? Is it moving inwards or outwards? Pain as a label doesn't say much, but underneath that label we have a range of phenomena. They all manifest conditionality, they manifest change, they manifest impersonality. So at least the change part I can begin to investigate. You can get high on a knee pain actually. Sometimes this is precisely the sort of things that help you cure your sleepiness. A little knee pain threatening to become so infernal that it will take all your attention can just be a real good stimulus to get out of a little post-brandial sleepiness after the meal. And you're hovering there, just following that little pain. And you know if you're really kind and turn to it and don't fight it, then it may be just about bearable. Yeah. If you want to make it an infernal big experience, just hate it. Yeah. Attack it. Jump on it. Curse it. And you'll have yeah, you'll have a great time with that sitting. So we, we know this, isn't it? And knowing the stages, you know, being able to scale your approach. If as possible, disregard. If it's no longer possible to disregard, if it takes too much energy, then give it your attention. You leave your primary object, you give it your attention, and you attend to it. But you don't attend to it by just hovering there. You're actually trying to get underneath the, the label. You're getting underneath the conceptualization of pain. You're getting underneath your own reaction to 
pain, because pain is bad. Uh, you shouldn't have it. So often we react to the notion of pain rather than to the actual discomfortable sensation underneath the pain. So we're getting in touch with this. And then, who knows, some of the pains dissolve. Some of them get stronger. If you never experience the pain dissolving in your attention, then you will not believe me, rightly so. Uh, pain sounds quite convincing. We have, you know, we have two cortical centers for the, for the uh, reception or experience of pain and deep pain. Um, we have a profound patterning around pain so that we try to avoid this. Um, we have all experienced pain, so it is likely that you have some bad memories of feeling helpless towards pain. So, you know, there's a package there around pain. And just to meet pain is uh, generally counterintuitive. It takes something com going completely against the grain of your, say, involuntary attentional patterns. So learning to do this is very, very revealing, both about ourselves and about the nature of pain. And in fact, the investigation of pain can bring a lot of stillness. It can bring a lot of fearlessness. It can bring a lot of confidence, trust in one's own capacity to hold difficult things. We grow with such stuff. One of the things that makes us most grow, that we remember best, is anything that helps us mitigate fear. Yeah? Developmentally, uh, there's a psychology which tells us quite clear that anything that helps me modulate my fear levels is something I'm likely to remember very well. I will not forget easily. Some of our challenges are cognitive. So, how do I deal with thought? There are different types of thought, and uh, I'll have to say more on this in a moment. But the first strategy and the most elegant and by far the one preferable in your application is disregard them. Yeah. If you somehow can, just, you know, let them pass, move aside a little bit and let them kind of go left and right. Don't engage with them. Don't talk to them. Don't hunt them. Don't try to avoid them. Just sit there, play the blue mountain, and let the white clouds go past. Yeah? As long as possible, just sit there and let those thoughts go past. Do, um, now there's probably a parliamentary term for this, if the parliament decides not to enter into debate about something. Yeah? It means it's not going to make the agenda, okay? <laughs> so basically, you, you're trying to do this. You know? You're trying to not have this thing become an agenda point. We're not, we've, we've made a decision of not spending our time on this one. Yeah? Something like that. You do that with your inner parliament, with your inner congress. Send it to committee. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling this is not that I have a feeling you're speaking of real politics. Okay, okay, that might be it. Yeah, that might be it. Yeah. Uh, the Germans call it. Uh, uh, they have 
a non-entry debate. They have a little debate to not enter into, <laughs> which is already risky. <laughs> but I guess you know what I mean here. Yeah, you acknowledge, okay, phenomena is happen, yet we do not um, divert our attention to it. We do not give our resources to this. That is by far the most elegant way and in many ways f effective way to thought. But we all know some thoughts are coming back, some thoughts coming at us with a charge. So we need to be able to say no. Yeah. If you can, say no. Say, uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I've taken your, taken your point, but right now we're doing something different. You know, if you're important, we'll get back to you. Sometimes that helps, you know, just kind of polite but resolute. You know. uh, sometimes that doesn't help and it, it, we need to acknowledge that some particular pattern is recurrent and then we have choices and these choices depend a bit where you are and what you do in your practice. If you're in a samatha phase, then you just say no. You say, uh, this is a distraction. Yeah? I'm going back to my task. If you're not in a samatha phase, you may actually decide to um, investigate that particular pattern. You try to get in touch, as I said yesterday, with the emotion behind it. But maybe you do not want to do this. Not everything that is coming at you with the charge is A, worthy of investigation, and B, the time. You, know? you have a say in this. It's not the intensity of the charge that makes the decision. It's you who makes the decision. So uh, sometimes it helps to label. You call this thinking. Or if it is of a particular type, you call this aversion, aversion, aversion. Yeah? You help yourself by giving it a label. And you have clarified to yourself how you deal with that label. You tag it. Yeah? Sometimes that helps. Just if your mind kind of keeps on giving off endless commentaries on the nature of the universe or what other people do wrong, or you know, if, if your mind is interior is, is into interior decoration and you you've turned in you've turned this into a you know whatever, yeah. So you just you might identify the particular pattern of thinking and tag it as that. Because you've clarified that you're not going to give your energy to this, the tag helps you um, putting this aside. Sometimes this is not, uh, it is necessary to identify, okay, where do I feel this in the body? What emotional charge does this have? Now we're getting into investigation stuff. It's always a good question. Anything that comes at you with intensity, Ask yourself, where do I feel this in the body? Can I localize that? Does this have a somatic component? Generally, it's easier to be with the somatic component because that somatic component does not proliferate. Yeah? Now, you have to understand the somatic como component is often not pleasant. So habitually, we would not be with that somatic component. Much of our thinking has to do because we do not want to feel the somatic component. Our thinking when we're anxious, for example, is partly an attempt to not feel the somatic component of fear in the body, which is uncomfortable. 
And one way to not feel this is thinking. Only tragically, this only works for a split second, yeah? the reduction of fear, because fear feeds on thought. Yeah? So this completely backfires. So one way is to kind of reverse engineer this process and say, go back, okay, I'm willing to hold the unpleasantness of a annoying feeling in the pit of my stomach. Yes, I'm willing to bear this. I agree to this. I have tried to go away from this a long time in my life and now I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to bear it. So I go and hover in the pit of my stomach and try to hold this uncomfortable feeling. And I breathe into there and I'm not taking my mindfulness away from there. And I'm willing to bear this experience, unpleasant as it may be. And the impulse to move away from there, I'm also willing to bear. And I stay there. And you find after a while, probably a short while, suddenly it it may not go away, but you may be able to find that it is possible to stay there. It is possible that you can breathe into an uncomfortable, anxious belly and not be dead. And you may even find that this helps to attenuate your mental state, yeah, because you're actually referring to the somatic anchor of that mental state. Now, on the mind level, you would feed that with anxious situations, with probability scenarios in which usually the most likely is the most horrible. Yeah? The, and you would feed your anxiety. We all know we've all built cognitive scaffoldings around our fears or our doubts, and then a little parameter has changed and the whole scaffolding comes tumbling down. Yeah? You cannot hold fear with thought. Neurologically, you can't, you know, your amygdala pipes are a lot bigger than for, you know, into your neocortex, then you can use your neocortex to modulate amygdala fears. This is no way you can do that, particularly not when you're afraid. You can slowly, long-term project, strengthen connections that work back back but if you have your amygdala really firing at you if things are really flooding then you know fear is just so much stronger so there's no way that you can hold up a cognitive construct against a real fear huh? so you need to have a place where you can hold that fear that is not just cognitive so being able to inhabit with Compassionate awareness, the body component of a fear, gives you a much better chance to modulate that fear. Yeah? So knowing such things and having the skill to practically do this will help you. If you have your panic attack while rock climbing, yeah, you did a little number of free climbing, 40, 50 meters up, and then suddenly a surprising rain showers, and there you are with your belly against the rock. and wall gets wet and you realize how foolish you were to just run up there without looking in the sky. And you know you have now to breathe very deeply, very slowly, and make sure that you get back safe. And if you're nervous and jittery, you probably won't. 
30 meters down, so it doesn't sound much if you sit in a meditation hall that is flat and safe. Uh, if you're up there and no belay, then it's quite a distance. Yeah. You don't want this. <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Yeah, there may be other situations in your life that induce fear. Yeah. So, what can I do with other things? Emotions that rip me away. Yeah. Well, first of all, you need to find out what triggers those emotions. Can you minimize the triggers? Can you promise yourself that you're not trying to investigate stuff that just routinely takes you out of the saddle? Just soberly and humbly acknowledge that this is too big. Yeah? This is too big right now. It makes me lose all my bearings. It makes me, it takes my energy away. Can I contain this? Very realistic. Can I contain this? Is this the time here? Trying to establish that you have some deliberate say in when you make yourself vulnerable and how much. Try to negotiate the space there. This is necessary. How much... You don't have to jump onto every little challenge, you know. Choose your, choose your battles carefully. And particularly, con consider the context. You do not need to investigate every little thought and every little feeling. I mean, all your little thoughts and your little feelings, they clamor for attention. Everything in there wants to be seen, heard, felt. Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts or feelings are like, but my all cl clamor for attention. They thrive on this. They say, I'm important. Do something. I will never go away. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of of this going on and you need some kind of parental position on this. Sometimes gentle and patient and sometimes resolute and yeah. You need to uh, develop a gamut of of responses to the stuff that comes to meet you, that comes to inhabit you. Some of this simply is waylaying you. It's not worthy of investigation. You need, to you need to find a way to distinguish what can I just park, what can I cut. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to say no. Yeah. One of my teachers uh, described to me once how he dealt with things that he was very clear were just unwholesome impulses that he had conditioned in earlier parts of his life. And he had he had this kind of fiery Lemurian figure he invoked, you know, and that uh, Lemurian <laughs> fiery figure just rose up and consumed whatever. Yeah. So he had, uh, you know, this. You don't find this in Buddhist textbooks. Yeah. You find it in Buddhist teachings. If you speak to Buddhist teachers, it's there. Or if you look at the Buddhist traditions, you need to find your personal ways in which you can meet some of the stuff that haunts you. Now, not everything that haunts you is a profound childhood trauma that you want to investigate and resolve. Yeah. And, you know, some traumas you don't resolve. You just have to move on. 
So I'm all for uh, investigating and, uh, you know, I'm a champion of using Buddhist teaching to uh, understand psychological developmental issues because they, they have a major impact in your meditation practice and some of them you will need to resolve before you can move on, but not all. Yeah. And you need to stop the drama, you need to stop the enactment. Um, there's also ways of getting lost in that domain. So just because it's posturing and, you know, saying I'm important, I will never go away, you know, I'm your problem. Do something about me, fix me, investigate me, release me cathartically, investigatively, analytically, you know. It doesn't necessarily need this. Yeah. Bodhisattva of compassion. Avalokiteshvara, he who listens to the sounds of the world, doesn't believe necessarily the sounds of the world. Yeah? He or she listens, doesn't believe the sounds of the world. Okay, There's a difference there. The compassion consists in deeply listening. It doesn't consist in believing everything that's being said. Yeah? There's a knot that says, yes, I hear you, and there's a knot that says, yes, I agree with you. These two knots you have to distinguish. So, practice sobriety with your, the particularity of your story when it comes up. When you do chitta upasana, this is necessary. There's a wonderful term. It occurs in the Pali a couple of times. Um, some of the teachers in the Thai forest tradition have taken it up. It's called Siti Bhutto, one who has become cool. Yeah? Being cool was a big thing already in the Pali. Yeah? It's, not a new, it's not a new thing. Having become cool. So, embody that Siti Bhutto character when it comes to dealing with your history, when it comes to dealing with your past, when it comes to dealing with your story. Be compassionate, but be sober. We need to speak about the Brahma Viharas and this. So, identify the activities in the particular satipatthanas. Body satipatthana, it's feeling, it's sensing, it's the raw material is qualities of the senses, warmth, cold, pressure, weight, extension, softness, hardness. The realm of pleasure is easy, it's just kind of, it's not even liking, it's the pleasure that precedes the liking. It's the displeasure that precedes the disliking. Yeah. Liking technically, uh, anuroda and viroda are the Pali terms. They're not very known uh, in circles. That means going along with. Yeah. That already is more than the Vedana. That is already a Sankara impulse. In other words, it's a kind of turning, leaning into something or leaning away from something. That already is part of doing. Vedana is not doing, it's receiving. Karmically, it's a vipaka quality. You do not have a say in terms of volition at the time it occurs. Even if it's perfectly immoral, you may still like it. You may still feel it as pleasant. Even though you have grave moral misgivings about you uh, feeling this as pleasant, (laughs) the only choice you have is how honest you're going to be about pleasant and unpleasant. Liking it is in many ways already the beginning of consent. 
moving towards, leaning in, reaching out or moving away, shriveling back, you know, going, going back. Yeah, these are already karmically active things. Yeah, in other words, they are going to have consequences. They are in many ways affirmative of the pattern. They are implying some degree of consent. And then usually that consent is followed through with uh, active seeking out, so trying to hold on, intensify. So understanding where your choices come in in this process is important. If you're sitting there and you keep having the same pleasant fantasies, then you know it took me a, a while to find out that actually I wasn't just sort of sitting in the movie. Uh, I was actually having something to do with these things. These things kept coming up because some part of me that I did not immediately acknowledge kept seeking them. Yeah, that the mind kept entertaining itself with also not just pleasant stuff. The sad thing is that we are quite capable of attaching to things that make us perfectly miserable. So we sit there hating us and hating the rest of the world and feeling averse to just about everything from yeah, the way your neighbor sits down to the way you, your mind works to the way the universe works and very quickly you basically need a fresh planet because this one is so full of aversion. Yeah? And usually the tail end is basically you hate yourself for your self-hatred, you are reversed against your aversion, you, you know, you think about your thinking, you know, you kind of, you're at that loop. And that's the time when you need to switch to metta, you know, or just go back to the breath or look at a tree or something, you know, kind of get out of that set. So know your tools, know your terrain, know what you're doing and find out what helps you in particular. Just because I talk about it or because I claim it has helped me doesn't necessarily mean it helps you in the same way. You see, there's many ways you can meditate and teachers, if they're good and authentic, they tell you what helps them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is going to be doing the job for your particular predicament. Yeah? You need to find out how you can help yourself. Maybe you need to listen to different voices and maybe you need to try out different things for yourself. So if what you keep trying to do doesn't seem to work or makes you tight or doesn't lead you anywhere, become curious what does work. Something will work. We all have different histories. We have different conditioning. If you think in terms of social and psychological conditioning, we are already quite different. If you add to that the karmic kind of um, beyond beyond this lifetime perspective, then you know things get really different. So you're old enough, you're curious enough, you're committed and experienced enough to find out what your king needs, yeah, what your mind, your king responds to. You feel that if you turn towards, if you're interested in that mind, if you're kindly and paying attention, that mind will be more than eager to tell you what helps it to become still, what it finds soothing, what is elucidating. Yeah. 
It's waiting for you to give it that attention. So, practice with the stuff, yeah? Enough for me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.